Welcome to the Marathon Bet Podcast, boot room to boardroom and everything in between. I'm Danny Kelly. Alongside me is Simon Jordan. Hi, Danny. I'm really looking forward to doing these shows and shining a light on the business of football. The former owner and chairman of Crystal Palace. How did you find the, I mean, the experience of playing in the Premier League? I sat in this meeting and we think that his bonus should be a million pounds. And my first question out of the seat was, how effing much? Nice first question, Simon. Welcome to the Premier League. But Richard has just signed this deal, which gives us all 1.2 billion quid. Sit down, shut up and take the money. You, you mentioned you were in the film industry there. And James Corden. I gave James his first break. Ungrateful little rat bag that he is. What are your favourite boardrooms to go to? Uh, Norwich. I like Delia. I like Delia. Tell me, Simon, the boardrooms where you weren't welcome. I didn't like to wear ties. So they wouldn't let me in the boardroom at Spurs. He said, well, we'll get you a tie. And they came out of the Spurs tie. I said, I, I am not going to wear a Spurs tie in your scabby boardroom. <laughs> David Moores was the chairman of Liverpool. And he turned round to me and said, here's something for you. It's a pendant. We give it to all the smaller clubs when they come here. So you can imagine my reaction was not the most politest. If you wanted to, you could probably go on jungle or dancing. I've got to be honest, without being too dramatic, I'd rather shoot myself in the face. There must come a moment, Simon, where, my God, I'm the owner of Crystal Palace. The only time I ever felt, wow, was when I walked out of the Millennium Stadium after winning the playoff final. I walked into a pub that I didn't know was full of Palace fans and the roof came off. And then you know what it's all about. Then you know what football's all about. Then you know what football club ownership is about. And then you pinch yourself and say, hello, the 30 million quid I've spent here might just be worth it. Among the shows we'll do over the next few weeks, Simon will investigate the world of transfers. We'll talk about the hiring and firing of these mythical creatures that are managers. We'll get into the whole business of football, indeed the future of the sport, television, global rights and all the rest of it. But this week we'll be talking about buying a football club, the actual buying and running of a football club, something that Simon Jordan is perhaps as qualified as anybody in the world to talk about having bought a club, lost a club, and these days maybe looking forward to buying one another one sometime soon. Who knows? You're listening, as I say, to the Marathon Bet Bootroom to Boardroom and everything in between. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. Don't forget, stick around to the end of the show where Simon and I will be given a chance. Marathon Bet are giving us the money to have a charity bet, three games that we think we can make a few bob on. That's coming up later on the show. Simon, let's go straight into this. What were your connections with football and with Crystal Palace as you were growing up? Well, I grew up 100 yards away from the stadium and I had a father that had played for Palace in the 50s before he was conscripted. Back in the day, guys got conscripted to go to a national service. National service, absolutely. Um, And so I had a real affiliation with the club. And when I was young, I used to climb over the over the fences and, and run up and down the pitch and climb up the stanchions that led up to the floodlights and and actually break into the uh, the gymnasiums inside the stadium and all that kind of stuff but as i got older I, I i started to become a very talented footballer and i signed i had a choice to sign for chelsea or palace and i started off at chelsea playing with a, a young player called michael thomas who went on to play for arsenal it's all um, up for grabs now you know, and, and, <laughs> and 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 succeed uh, at, at a very high level and um and I went to Palace when I was 16. John Cartwright was the under-21 coach for England, but was also the coach at Palace. So I had a, a, a passage of time playing football there. I didn't quite make it because I just didn't have a discipline. We should, we should make the point to people who listen to this podcast, particularly young people, that the, uh, the, the first division, which is now the Premier League, mm-hmm. was very different then. And Crystal Palace, at the time that you were watching them, under yeah. Terry Venables, people thought they were going to win the title. They were going to be the team of the 80s. Well, they were called the team of the 80s. And I can remember going... 
when I was like 11, I think, to watch them play Burnley to get promoted from the, from what was called the second division now, which is now the championship, to the first division, which is obviously now the Premier League. And 53,000 fans were there and watching Kenny Sampson and Vince Hilaire and Billy Gilbert and Dave Swindlers and Ian Walsh and all of these players that became, to me, Icons. In that beautiful white kit with the red and blue sash down Which I bought it. back in 2005 in the Centenary kit, I yeah. bought that back in 2005 when I, when, I, when I was obviously the chairman of Palace. So that was my involvement with Palace growing up as a supporter, growing up as a fan and growing up as somebody that had a father that played for them in the 50s and actually got an opportunity to play some youth, youth team games for myself with them. All right, that establishes your Palace credentials. Yep. Um, and we'll come back to how, how, you, you know, how you made enough money to buy it. But yep. All of us at various times, whatever club you support, you either dream of being the manager and being able to talk some sense into these players, yeah. or you dream of owning the club. My, I always had a mad scheme where I would own a club, sign only players who are 20 or 21, explain to them, right, I'm going to pay you a lot of money over the next three or four years, but I don't expect you to get married or anything else. You yeah. Devote yourself to the club. So we all have those dreams. Did you did it, did it develop as a thing with you about owning Palace, or did you always dream that one day you could own the club you actually no, support? No, not in the slightest. I went off. Uh, my football, I stopped playing football when I was about six, uh, 16 and I came back to when I was 20, went to America and signed a semi-pro contract with a team in New York. So I was playing out some football in America, came back, then went commercial, ended up building a, a rather successful mobile phone business. The guy that bought Palace was a guy called Mark Goldberg. He bought it from Ron Nodes. The infamous Ron Nodes. From the infamous <laughs> Ron. Um, and um, Mark and I came across one another because my mobile phone business at that time was doing quite well. And I said to my father as a, as a treat, why don't you go and get yourself an executive box at Palace and tell me what it costs? So he went down there and met her, the, my head of marketing, which was a girl called Anne-Marie Clark. And eventually I met Anne-Marie and we dated for about two years. And my, um, I, I, I should warn everyone in this podcast, almost, almost any female name that gets mentioned, Simon will go on to date them. Yeah, that's lovely. Unless yeah, the Queen yeah, gets yeah, mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but I ended up not only just um, buying my father an executive box, I agreed to spending 100 grand a year sponsoring a particular part of the stadium. I got familiar with Mark and I liked Mark a lot, but I could see instantaneously that Mark was in, in trouble financially with Palace and he wanted me to come on and get involved in being part of the setup, part of his involvement. He'd spent £20 million buying Crystal Palace, paying Ron Nodes money left, right and centre for options on the stadium for six months, then renewing it. So I looked at it, but I couldn't get involved because I was the managing director of a successful business. Mark's football club, Crystal Palace, was not successful. It was about to go, in, in my view, into, uh, into administration. And he needed to borrow money, and he came to me to borrow money. So I agreed to lend him some money on the precursor that this money was secured against something. And he offered me his house (laughs) in security, Dan. So I said to him, OK, let me be clear on this. If I take a charge on your house... I'm the only person that's got a charge. He said, yes. So I left the money in escrow. I think it was about... Meaning that if, if the money goes sideways, yeah. you, would, you would get yeah, his house. Yeah, exactly. Had you been to his house? Did you know what kind of house it was? No, I knew it was a, it was a sizable and, you know, and stately sort of pile in Keston somewhere. Lovely. Um, and off I went. I went away to, to Miami for a trip and left it with my lawyers. And I found out that everyone from the dustman to Terry Venables upwards had a charge at um, security on Mark's <laughs> house. So therein broke the deal with Mark Goldberg. But what I then did, Dan, was I sat back for a year watching this football club the football club that I supported, 
struggle. It had gone into administration. Mark had gone out the door. I'd introduced him, ironically, to someone that you might know, David Buckler, who yeah, was yeah. on the board at Spurs, who's yeah. an insolvency practitioner. And David had told Mark that he had to go into administration. Mark didn't fancy that idea. Uh, but eventually, he got no choice. So I sat there for a year. At the same time as I was beginning to turn the wheels about selling my mobile phone business, I had the second largest mobile phone retailer Remind in the country. Remind people what it was called again. It was called the Pocket Phone Shop. Right. But people will now know it as T-Mobile because all the T-Mobile shops that you see will have been my Diverted, shops that have yeah. been rebranded. Right. Okay. So I was in the business of selling that business at the same time as thinking maybe I could have a look at Palace. Maybe I could have a look at Palace. So this becomes a moment where you're moving out of the phone business, yeah. which leaves you with a lot of, I presume, if not spare cash, access to cash. Mm -hmm. What else would you have done? If you hadn't decided, because we're, we're going to get onto the story of how, how much has affected your life um, buying, owning, and having to look yep. after Crystal Palace. If you hadn't bought Crystal Palace, then you must have asked this yourself this a hundred times. What would you have done with that great pile of cash? You wouldn't have just. I know you took well enough, Simon. You were, you're too you're too busy, you're too active, you're too curious a person. You wouldn't have just decided to buy a beach hut in uh, in the Maldives and sit there in your flip flops all day, would you? Well, I never gave myself cause or pause to thought because I was buying Palace with the money that I was selling the mobile phone business mm -hmm. for before I'd actually sold the mobile phone business. So these were almost back to back deals and actually it probably cost me about 10 or 15 million quid in buying palace and letting it letting them letting people know because the head of one to one who were the business that were buying t-mobile as they are now branded themselves um, was a big liverpool fan and he knew me very well and he knew that i wanted to buy palace and he knew the key to me buying palace was the money the 80 odd million quid that i was selling this business for. right so so he used that that knowledge to leverage the price down a little bit because he knew I was in advanced talks with Palace. And so you, at, you, sooner or later, you're going to need the yeah, dough. Yeah? At one point, the offer for the mobile phone business was up at about 100 million. So it got chipped down through due diligence, which I know was John's version of saying, I know you want to buy this football club, so I'm going to leverage you I, on I it. I hope later on in the programme we hear how you screwed him back, yeah? Well, we did because we played <laughs> Liverpool in the Cup semi-final later on that season and beat them in the first leg. Absolutely there we spot are. On. Yeah, you've got to. Um, Simon, this is a hard question. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the value of Crystal Palace. We live in a world now where, you know, the club I support, Spurs, Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis, they think it's worth north of a billion pounds. You see Manchester United um, rated... Valued at three and four billion, yeah. Alongside mm. the likes of the Dallas Cowboys, yep. the most valuable things in the world in terms of sport. And yet you bought Crystal Palace for... Ten. Ten, Ten million. million pounds. Yep. Now, that is not a lifetime ago. You know, no, that's in not, living memory. 19 years ago, yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately... You know, you, when you buy a football club, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but the reasons why people buy football clubs. You know, some people buy them because they, they want recognize it, rec to be recognised. Some people want them for credibility. Some people, you know, I know a West London football club owner that bought it for a very expensive life insurance policy. I bought Palace because I thought it was an opportunity. That's Chelsea, is it? Yeah, that's Chelsea. Right, thank you. I, I thought it On was behalf a, of our people wondering yeah. what code you're speaking there, yeah, that's Chelsea. I, I thought that Crystal Palace was a club that... With the energy and determination, I was 31 when I bought it. Wow. Um, and with the energy and determination, when you come out of one industry, Dan, and you're successful, you do have a tendency to believe that you're golden. Yeah. And you do have a tendency to believe that you can take that skill set, which is, in my case, drive and determination. And I always believe the fastest route between A and B is a straight line. I didn't believe obstacles were things that you stopped at. I believe there were things that you overcame, went through, or found a way around, but never used as an excuse to stop at. And I believe that that would be something I could take into football. I learned to my cost that football was a very unique business, but my motivations and my challenges were £10 million was comparable. If you're talking about 
what the Premier League has now got against what it had in 2000. The Premier League deal in 2001 was 670 million for every three years. Okay, that's 220 million. The Premier League deal now is 8.7 billion. So if you look at the, the, the multiplier, if you look at the multipliers, yeah. then quite frankly, I probably paid quite a lot of money for what was not a Premier League club at that time. Again, another question then. So you, you get the club yep. for £10 million. Pounds yep. And you are, well, first of all, we'll talk about how people reacted to you being not just the youngest owner um, ever, I think, for a yeah. because when I was growing up, I mean, a, you didn't know. We'll talk this about this later yeah, on. How this has changed. The, the owners of football clubs were invisible figures. Yep. They did not. You knew who the manager was. You knew who the players were. The exception was a man called Bob Lord at Burnley, Burnley yep. who for some reason was a, a kind of public figure. Yep. Bob Lord, I think he kind of led the sort of cabal of owners. And occasionally, if there's a bigger case, a bigger issue in the world, Bob Lord would speak. And it's still got a Bob Lord standard. But I also they? think that the balance at the time was very much in the favour. He was like an old mill baron. Yeah. The balance was in the favour of owners. And now what we've got is a balance that's changed, totally. diametrically changed. So you've now got the, all the power lies with the players. And I think that football's got to get a, a recalibration at some point. And I think it's beginning to because the Premier League clubs, as we sit today, are, are pretty profitable items. So the dynamics has changed. And when I walked in the door, the, the, the point that you touch upon was that the best owners... I, I used words that people didn't like. I used words that the, but football is a business. And the fans were like, oh my, that's, that's, it's not a business, it's a football club. Well, of course it's a business. If I've got to pay someone 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 pounds a week to kick a football around, in my view, that's a business because I've got to generate the revenue from my own pocket or from the business of football to be able to afford these sort of um, players or commodities as I viewed them. I viewed players as commodities. I viewed them Again, as... Again, fans hate that, don't well, they? Well, you know, yeah. they, did, they did hate it. And they didn't like... They thought that the best chairman were the ones you never heard from. And now you look at football now and it's an absolute must... That the, that the owner of a football club, the fans' perception of what they are and who they are comes very much to the fore. So I was very different because I was having none of that. I was having none of what I considered to be the, the, the nuances of football because I did walk into an industry that's very antiquated. Let, let, me, get, let me come back to that because yeah. uh, I wanted to ask you a question that I think is very hard to answer in the present tense because I'm asking you to look back into your own mind 19 yeah. years ago. When you bought Crystal Palace, we'll talk about your ambitions in a minute, but what about your fears? Did you know? I mean, you're a very successful businessman, as you say. Yeah. You think you transfer these skills from one thing to the other very easily. Did you know that you were risking everything you'd built in your young life at that moment when you bought a football club? No. No, because I don't think you look at those things. I think if you're, if you're successful, you look at the half full glass rather than the half empty glass. And what I learned, what football taught me more than anything, was... You know, take care of your downside because your upside will take care of itself. So I was always of the mindset was that if we did this, then it would achieve that, i.e. an upward movement, a, a, you know, a direction of travel which was upwards towards ascent. But often within the confines of football, the exact opposite applies. You go buy a player for a fortune and he actually does the square root of nothing for you <laughs> right, besides consume your cash. So you learn, you learn those things and there's no, there's no substitute. Football is one of the two businesses that I've been in that are the most brutal businesses and I will say disingenuous and they are football and films Yeah, because they don't pay their bills when they should do. Very rarely the talent perform the way you want them to and you find often that the people that you should be able to rely on are the ones that you can rely on the least. And there's actually no measurable... Um, performance indicator for actors or footballers. They get paid 
in advance whether they act terribly. Well, you've been around this sector. Yeah. So you know, there's no bloody accountability either. None at all. You know, you, you, they want all of the responsibility. They want all of the opportunity. But if you dare make a footballer or a football manager accountable for the decisions they make, then all of a sudden you're putting them under pressure. It's in undue influence. It's people interfering. It's the chairman poking his nose in where he shouldn't do. His job, his sole job in the world is to write a cheque out and buzz off. Placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your ACCA this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbgambleaware.org. You, you mentioned you were in the film industry there. Let, let's do, let's just briefly talk about the time when, uh, uh, because of your love of music, but I think we yep. share, of course, um, you decided to make a film um, about the great and eccentric and wonderful 1960s British music producer Joe Meek. Yep. The film's called Telstar, after his biggest yep. hit by the Tornadoes. And, and you, get, you went into that, I know, with mm-hmm. your traditional mixture of enthusiasm, chutzpah and, yeah. um, and bull in a china shop. Yeah, absolutely. How did, how did the film industry react to you? Um, pretty much the same way that the uh, football industry reacted to me with, with a degree of mirth and mayhem in their reaction because I didn't pull any punches. I remember doing a speech at the BAFTA on Piccadilly and talking about the film industry. And I remember Jeremy Edwards is quite a famous producer that was responsible for some very big films like Human Traffic. And he said, well, the film industry is just a cottage industry, young man, and it will never change. And I said to him, all right, basically, so we don't have any sound now, do we? And all the films are black and white, are we? And I went (laughs) off on some rant at the film industry and what a corrupt and corrosive business it was whilst I was trying to negotiate my film being shown in their cinemas. (laughs) So it was that kind of mentality. And it was very similar to, you know, times in football where I would, you know, I wasn't wrong in the things that I said a lot of the time, but if you challenge vested interest and you challenge people that have a, that have a way of operating that benefits them, then you'll always potentially come out second best. So when I went into the film industry, there were so many, so many similarities between football and films. The talent is the actors, the talent is the players. The manager is the director. The you know the you know the the, the 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 comparison between a manager and a director is very very Huge, similar. Yeah. And then you're the money to get back and watch what they're prepared the to muggin, deliver for the muggins, you. Muggins, as they or, see it. Or, or the muggins <laughs> in this particular instance. But there was a, and you know and of course, you know there were some very interesting people that I cast in that film. Kevin Spacey, which I know is a is a name that doesn't get bounded around in the best terms now. No, but, but it was a fabulous but then he was actor. Huge name, fabulous yeah, actor. Yeah. And James Corden, I gave James his first break. Ungrateful little rat. Nick Moran, brilliant rat. Nick Moran, Nick Moran wrote it and directed it, and obviously from his lock, stock, and two smoking barrels days. Um, but you know some real talent, Ralph Little, some very interesting people that have gone on to do other things. Tom Burke, that's in the, the Musketeers series, and a variety of different people, and some real musical legends. But but it was a it was a Jess Conrad was in it as well. Yeah. Um, but it was a, a, a my pullover. It was this a, pullover. Yeah, it was an interesting break from football, but with the same dynamics attached to it which my job was to write checks for them so the house isn't working but they know that you need you've got money coming out of the telephone business you're looking to buy crystal palace there must come a moment simon where you actually have to do like anybody else buying a car or a pint or a house where you sign a piece of paper in a room full of men in suits and you think my God, I'm the owner of Crystal Palace. How do you physically buy and own a football club? Well, the ultimate facetious answer is you write a cheque out. Um, but what you do is you do the same thing as you do in most businesses. You do due diligence. You, you, you find out what the assets of the football club are, 
what their revenue streams are, i.e. how much money they've got in the bank, how much their season tickets sell for, what they traditionally get for their merchandise, i.e. the club shop and, and, and what deals they've got, who's their shirt sponsor. And you put that all into a, into a, into a framework. I mean, it's when I look at these deals going on now with football clubs and say Bolton, for example, being bought, it doesn't take long to do diligence. It really doesn't. You either want to do it or you don't because you're, you're not buying a business that has the same rules and principles as other businesses because you buy a business that's got a playing squad. If you've got a player, I had a player that came from Birmingham and, and I'm jumping off a little bit, but I'll come back to the answer. Andy Johnson, I got him on a free transfer because I sent Clinton Morrison one way and Andy Johnson the Lovely other. Clinton. Right? Lovely Clinton. Um, the pest, as I euphemistically yeah. criticised him. I christened him, sorry, and criticised. Um, but Andrew came onto our books with a zero value. But I sold him to Everton four years later for £10 million. So there's no, there, there was a different dynamic around football clubs. But I walked in there, I was prepared to pay. The club was in decline, was in administration. The deal was £10 million. My view was, do I want to write a cheque out for £10 million or don't I? Do I feel that the influence that I can bring to bear with this football club will give me fruition for the £10 million? What am I going to spend afterwards? OK, what's my ceiling? So when I bought Palace, there was no fit and proper persons test. And for people that don't understand what that means, it's about qualifying whether you are who you say you are and you have the best intentions in mind. It's a joke. We'll talk about it another it's show. It's a joke. Um, but I actually, actually broke every single rule because when I bought Palace, I didn't want to buy the stadium from Ron Nodes because he wanted me to pay twice what it was worth. So I took a 10-year lease on the stadium. And the tenure, the agreement with the Football League is you have to have a minimum of 10 years. So the day after I bought Palace, I was in breach of Football League rules from the get-go. Well done. But I also bought it in a fashion that nobody knew I was buying it. I used the front. I didn't want Ron Nodes and a group of creditors that I thought were going to rinse the opportunity for some Johnny-come-lately Billy Wiz that Dave Bassett called me once <laughs> for the time um, to come in and have his pocket picked before he even walked to the door. So I had a Malaysian businessman that was buying the club for a year, 18 months before, get it into a bundle. I walked into a room that nobody knew I was coming in. I walked into Who the room. Who was in the room? Can you remember? It was, it was the, uh, the administrators of Crystal Palace, the Football League representation. They didn't know I was coming in and the administrator didn't like me. And I tried to deal with me. I tried to deal with him to buy the club. He wasn't playing ball with me. So when I went to go into that room to sign the papers, he tried to stop me from going in. And he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going into that room. He said, it's full. I said, yes, it's full of my money. I'm coming in. And they, the club was sold twice to Jerry Lim. And then he signed it over to me in the space of two minutes. So the club had two owners in, in the space of five minutes. You couldn't do that now because the fit and proper person's test, as laughable as it is, declares. But it is all about... Biting down the gum shield. You see these valuations, Dan. There's no way Manchester United is worth three billion pounds. No. There's no way. It makes 120 or 100 million. Your club made 113 million. Tottenham made 113 world record. World record. If you're buying a shop, you'd multiply it by 20. 10, yeah. 15, yeah. 20 yeah. tops. Yeah. Max. Right. Yeah. Very max. Very max. Right. But. But you take a leap of faith upon what you think a football club is worth. You look at what's around you. You do as much diligence as you can, and you take a view. You take a plunge. And you write a bloody check. And do you remember, finally on this, can you remember, personally, I would have walked out eventually on my own in the middle of the stadium, just walked out to the pitch. And no, I didn't at, do that. You didn't? No, I didn't do that. I'd have gone, I, I own this now. I didn't do that. That wasn't my nature. My nature was, okay, I've done this, what's next? The only time I ever felt, wow, was when I walked out of the Millennium Stadium after winning the playoff final against West Ham, was waiting for my driver to come pick me up. He couldn't get across the town. I walked into a pub that I didn't know was full of Palace fans, and the roof came off. And then you know what it's all about. Then you know what football's all about. Then you know what football club ownership is about. And then you pinch yourself and say, hello, the 30 million quid I've spent here might just be worth it. 
you talk about luck, a little bit of luck you had. Ian Dowie, a bloke mm. with whom you ended up in court, probably yep. probably um, fighting him in the car park, um, <laughs> finds a way to take your team from the bottom, near the bottom of the championship to promotion. Tell me about getting into the Premier League and then just just tell us how it began, how, how it unravelled and ends up with, with you um, with the backside out your trousers. Well, I mean... I don't know if I like that analogy, but we'll, we'll, I'll work backwards from there. Of course, but, I, um, I always overestimate how much you lost, don't I? Yeah. But, but um, I once I once used the B word about Simon. Yes, he was I did. very I unhappy. Much like it, yeah. yes. But um, you know, you look at the the business of football, and you look at the four years. And I went through in my first season at Palace. I spent ten million pounds on players. Now you've got to get that into 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 context. Ten the, the 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 championship clubs or the League One clubs as they are now, or as they as they as they were then Division One clubs then, mm. um, championship clubs now, we're getting two million in broadcast deals. Right? Um, so for me to spend ten million pounds on players is probably equivalent to a championship club now spending thirty or forty or fifty million quid. So the scales are not incomparable to what's going on now with certain big clubs that are languishing in the championship, Aston Villa or, or Leeds City did last or Stoke or what Wolves did or, eighteen yeah, months ago. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, I tried to accelerate. You know, I built a mobile phone business in five years. I started it with 15 grand, sold it for the best part of 100 million quid, built 250 shops. It was my natural way to push. So I thought I could do that with football. First season, we went to a cup semi-final, beat Liverpool in the first leg, got smashed to pieces in the second leg at Anfield. Um, you know, we nearly got relegated. We got into playoff semi-finals, but eventually we got promoted via Ian Dowie. Ian Dowie was someone I brought in. Um, I think he was the third or fourth manager that I had during that period of time because I made no bones. I don't. I don't understand the myths that football has. There's so many myths that you know. The be- you know you need stability. You need continuity. Well, if it's going the right way, nothing wrong with stability right. and continuity. Yeah. If it's going the wrong way, then why should you? Why should you continue with it? You, you, people weren't allowed in the dressing room. I found out the reasons why people weren't allowed in the dressing room is because there's nothing going on in there. Some of <laughs> some of the some of the so-called Churchillian speeches that I've heard so-called leaders of men give to players. I heard 19-year-old sales managers in my mobile phone business be more inspirational. You know, and I just look, look at these things. They, you know. The myths that surround football. You mustn't go to the training ground. The chairman mustn't have an opinion. The best owners are the ones you never hear from. According to Len Shackleton's book, I always say Brian Clough, yeah. but it's actually Len Shackleton. Shackleton yeah. What do football directors know about football? Two blank pages. It's nonsense, but it's self-serving mythology that football yeah. reverberates around. But what we did was we got promoted. We went fourth from bottom in the league in that season to being promoted to the only place, in my view, to play football and the only place to own a football club which is the Premier League, because you move out of what I consider to be the backwaters of football, where people are more interested in the in the football league meetings about deciding what colour the linesman's flag should be, rather than how much money we need, because we're all bleeding out of our eyes, no one's got any money outside of the Premier League, and we need desperately to be able to find extra sources of finances. But when you land in the Premier League, you land there amongst Manchester United, and Arsenal, and Liverpool, and your mob, Tottenham, and Chelsea. And the one thing that unites everybody is their common pursuit of as much money as they can get. Placing a bet? It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your acker this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbegambleaware.org. How did you find the, I mean, the experience of playing in the Premier League, first of all? I mean, did Palace struggle initially? How did it go? Well, I went in there with Ian, and whilst Ian and I didn't always see eye, eye to eye, and it's fair to say I, I didn't 
really like Ian as a person. I respected the acumen um, that he had brought to bear. And I respected the job that he did. I didn't respect the man. I think Ian was one of those people that had a great ability to manage down, but couldn't manage up. And it's very important. A football manager's job isn't just to manage their players. They want, they've got to manage their relationship with their owner or their CEO, or in this instance, their owner and chairman, which was me. They will like the relationship. Football managers will tell you they will like the relationship of having the direct link to the money, to the influence. But with that comes also an ability to have to manage your owner because whether you like it or not as a football manager, whether you're Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, Ian Dowie, Roy Hodgson, whoever you want to name, you are an employee of somebody else that has more influence in that football club than you do. And just because you get the microphone put in front of your face on a Saturday afternoon after the game doesn't make you the most powerful person in that football Even club. Even Brian Clough. Don't tell me Brian Clough. Well, I, I never met Brian. I obviously had Trevor Francis yeah. working for me as a manager, and Trevor spoke a lot about Brian Clough, and I would have loved to have met Brian. I've met Nigel, but I've never, I've never met oh, his son Nigel, but I've never met Brian. But I think everybody's a product of their time. But going to your question, yeah. it was exciting. It was like going and seeing the best rock band in the world play at the best stadium as opposed to a really good pub band playing in a really good pub that you like. And the Premier League was just energy and vitality. And it was like, you know, I, you know I was involved with a, with a band called The Specials, yeah. who I reformed in the, in the mid-2000s. And they did a song called Ghost Town. And I used that to, to, in a video to say, when we were looking at all the grounds that I didn't want to go back to, right, the cruise, and with respect to Sheffield Wednesday and even Nottingham Forest, I set it to the music of Ghost Town. Right. And when I looked at all the Premier League grounds, I set it to the music of the Jacksons, Can You Feel It? Because it's an aspirational, uplifting environment. It's the only, for me, it's the only place to play football. I get the value of the pyramid. I absolutely respect, and I believe the Premier League should do far more than it does do. Because the Premier League has created this enormous divide, this drip-down effect with the enormous wealth in the Premier League that doesn't find its way down the pyramid. And that's why we have to listen to these ridiculous things like Wembley being sold to try and finance English football. <laughs> nonsense, and that sort of nonsense. Utter nonsense. But it was, it was, for me, the most engaging place. Although in my first uh, uh, Football League meeting, I was sat there and I was sat next to the late Freddie Shepherd from Newcastle, who I liked a lot, and David Dean who had done me the favour of selling me players for twice their worth, um, when I'd first bought Palace, and the Arsenal, former Arsenal. And uh, Who did he sell you? He sold me, um, he sold me uh, Tommy Black and Julian Gray. He um, put them out on loan, Matthew Upson, uh, yeah, half, and told, Matthew, England, told yeah. me Matthew was on £10,000 a week, and, and I could cover all his wages when, in fact, Matthew was on five. So I paid him <laughs> twice on loan what, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what I should have paid him. But I sat in this meeting, this first Premier League meeting, and I've got all the big clubs there, and the first question is, Richard Scudamore's in the room. Richard has to go out of the room because the remuneration committee, which is being headed up by David Gill, who was the Manchester United, United chairman, head show, uh, yeah. uh, uh, chief exec, or vice chairman, actually, um, was putting forward a plan for Richard's bonus. And the first question was, right, Richard's done this wonderful job deal with Sky, right? And we now need to give him his bonus. And we think that his bonus should be a million pounds. And my first question out of the seat was, how effing much? That isn't that his job. And I got literally told to sit down by everybody. Nice first question, Simon. Welcome to the Premier League. But Richard has just signed this deal, which gives us all 1.2 billion quid. Sit down, shut up and take the money. But I know, because we've talked about it many times, you and I, that 
I mean, the analogy you always make or make, make and I just love it, actually, is the Premier League. It's so puffed up. It's so full of its yeah. own brilliance. The idea that it has made this huge financial empire out of this working class game they somehow inherited. Um, and yet you make the point there are certain film franchises. Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Man makes a film every four years and yet still makes more money out of selling Iron Man dolls and Iron Man T-shirts and Iron Man cushion covers than the Premier League does. Yeah, I mean, I think so what's this great deal they've done? What's well, this great achievement they, they've had? Well, they have because ultimately the evolution of football to change the direction of travel changed dramatically, but it hasn't even scratched the surface. So we've spoken, we speak about it regularly ourselves, mm. and we'll speak about it in these shows going forward. Definitely about the construct of football and the and I did a I did a, a speech, much to the horror of the football fraternity, at um, uh, the BT Sunday Telegraph uh, uh, lunch, and I talked about. I've been out of football for five or six years and I'm watching the ownership models and I'm watching the mentality. And the question was, how does football evolve? And your club and Liverpool turned around and said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I, feel, I said, I feel like I've gone back in, I've gone to an H.G. Wells novel, gone back into a time machine and landed back with the Morlocks. You guys, these broadcasters aren't going to fund you forever. There's going to come a point where you're too expensive and the... the, and the and They'll the, move on. And the churn rate that's coming out of customers that are paying too much to Sky to watch the, the end product at 70, 80 pounds a month is going to eventually exceed what Sky are able to generate from themselves to pay football. So you're going to have to row your own boat. But that notwithstanding... The business of football is an exhilarating business. And the genesis of your question was, is it rewarding? Was it challenging? What did you get from it besides potential impoverishment, which, was, which I know is your tongue-in-cheek uh, analogy? No, seriously, Simon. I, I read in the papers that you lost every bean you'd ever oh, earned. I lost, I lost 50, 60 million quid. 50, certainly 50 million quid in Paris, yeah. yeah. You're you down know. to your last but, 30 but, million but quid. But I took, it, I took it... You know, I took Palace on as a challenge because I, I, I believe that... Uh, that you have a responsibility. I believe that football club owners have a responsibility. This new generation of football club owners, I have no nothing wrong with them. I was a generation that came in. I think, without being arrogant and up my own backside, I changed the direction of travel. I was the first football club owner to fire a player. I was the first football club owner... Remind us who it was. That was uh, Jamie Pollock. Yeah. I was the first football club owner to put a manager on garden leave, Steve Bruce, because he didn't want to behave himself and wanted to go and work for my mates at Birmingham, David Gold and David Sullivan. I didn't like it. But I also was you know, very keen to have, have a culture of respect in the football club. I was very keen to, to understand what the fans wanted because I was a fan and I wanted my players to be responsible. You know, I remember coming out of grounds, seeing fans that have slept up and down the country and seeing my players at times not represent them and not give value for them. And that was something I always struggled with. So I was very emotive about it. And I was very challenged and very... I wasn't emotive about being bullied in, by fans about who I would hire and who I would fire and who I would buy and who I would sell. But I was emotive about the responsibility that I felt that I as an owner had. And I think now with the new generation of owners, they don't get it. If you look at some of the owners like Ellis Short that stepped away from Sunderland and you watch a decline of clubs at the top of a football club, it isn't managers, sorry, it isn't chairman that produce football teams. It's chairman and owners that produce cultures in football club that enable football managers and it's football players to It's not a matter of ownership, it's a matter of leadership, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. Leadership. Absolutely right. One of the things I hope we're going to do here on, on the Marathon Bet uh, Boot Room to Boardroom podcast that we're going to do a series of, and remember 18 plus, please be gamble aware, is to try and shine a light for some of our listeners into a world they could never hope to get into. What were your favourite boardrooms to go to? Which clubs were you welcomed at? Which ones did you enjoy going to? Uh, Norwich. 
I'd like I liked Delia. I liked Delia and yeah. her chairman at the time, chief executive Roger Mumby. I liked Nottingham Forest. When I used to go into Nottingham Forest, Nigel Ray, God rest his soul, but Ken Clark was in there. The 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 politician or Carl Froch, the boxer, was in there, and it was always Brilliant. a very engaging boardroom. Um, Tottenham, I wasn't. No, I I wasn't a boardroom person. I made no. some dreadful statements. That I, re, I regret at the time saying, you know, I didn't go to to football clubs to drink their chardonnay and be in their boardroom. I go in there to beat them up, take three points and leave. Well, and I, they didn't ingratiate me. No, no, well, I'll come back to the ones that you don't like in a second because Spurs, of course, were a funny club in the, when you uh, sort of took mm. over there. Because I can remember a little before that, um, I had a, my only experience ever of being anywhere near the boardroom of a club was when the Spurs had then, just after they opened the new stand, for reasons too complicated to go into, I found myself in the room, the glass box, where the actual board would sit and watch the matches. Mm. Now, in in my mind, I thought this might be a rather sort of gilded Versailles sort of affair. In fact, it was a plain box with a glass screen in front of looking out onto the pitch on the halfway line with 10 chairs. And they weren't even luxurious chairs, just ordinary dinner chairs for watching the match. But what they did have was a box with an LED display on it. And every person that came through the turnstile, it ticked over ticked one more. Yeah. That's all they were interested in, yeah. how many people were coming through that door. Tell me, Simon, the boardrooms where you weren't welcome or where things went tits up, frankly. Um, Spurs? Yeah. I didn't, I, didn't go, I didn't like to wear ties. So they wouldn't let me in the boardroom at Spurs. And David Buckler, my old mate, um, again, someone that you know, came out and with a tie and I said you can wear he said, he said, the, 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 the steward said to me have you got a tie I said no but I've got a doctor's note he said well we'll get you a tie and they came out with a Spurs tie I said I, I am not going to wear <laughs> a Spurs tie in your scabby boardroom <laughs> um, Liverpool I did not like Liverpool we played Liverpool in the cup semi-final we beat them 2-1 at Selhurst Park and we went up to Anfield and I didn't particularly want to go in the boardroom, but one of my friends was the managing director of Phones for You, and he was a rabid Liverpool fan. He said, can we go into the boardroom? Right. So I said, well, OK, if you want to. So we're going to the boardroom, and David Moores was the chairman of Liverpool. And he turned round to me and said, here's something for you. I said, what's this? He says, it's a pendant. We give it to all the smaller clubs when they come here. <laughs> so you can imagine my reaction was not the most politest. And I turned round to someone. I said to him, excuse me, could you hang my coat up? And it was Christa Berg. <laughs> because he was a big Liverpool fan and he was in the boardroom there, there for, uh, for, for, for a jolly for the cup semi-final. But I didn't, you know, I didn't like, I didn't like Birmingham. I didn't like going in there with David Gold and David Sullivan. I like Karen. I think Karen's lovely. Yeah. But I didn't particularly like uh, Goldie and Sullivan at the time. At Sheffield Wednesday, you know, it was antiquated. The list will go on. And the list will go on. Actually, it's probably more, it's easier to find the clubs that I do like to What was wrong to. with Sheffield Wednesday? They just didn't. It was very, it was, it was like going into a mausoleum. You know, you've got to appreciate, Dan, I didn't help myself. I was 31. Yeah. And the average chairman at that age was 62. And I had lots to say, not because I was being flashed, because I was really committed and believed that, that what I wanted to achieve was the right thing. And I didn't want to. I didn't believe in fraternizing with the enemy. I, I wanted to win and I didn't want to be their mate. What I learned later on was you get more with honey than you do with vinegar sometimes, especially when you're trying to buy players from these people <laughs> a year later and they remember the fact that you were, you were clever Rude. sod in their boardroom. Yeah. Cost you a great deal of money, but it also gave you status in society, mm, some, some recognition. Um, you could probably, if you wanted to, you could probably go on Jungle or Dancing. Yeah. Have you tried? Have you been asked? I've got to be honest, without being too dramatic, I'd rather shoot myself in the face. Yeah, yeah. I, have you been asked? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, which one? 
Uh, jungle. Yeah, why didn't you go? Because I not if you tied my tongue to the back of a bus and dragged me there when I go to these places. All right, let me I've ask got better you. things to do with my time. All right, what regrets do you have about your time as an owner of a football club? I regret the way it ended. I regret the fact that I was very brave and I didn't see other people's agendas and I was looking forward to try and survive a very difficult time in a banking crisis in the world of football and a very difficult time for me personally. I had investments in America, in films, in football, in property in Spain, and I got hit by a tsunami. But rather than rather than back off, which is not my style, I took on these things and I didn't see people behind me coming up and taking things that were necessarily mine. My regrets were that I was right in a lot of things I said, but the manner in which I said them could have done with some polish. And I regret that I allowed certain sections of the media to paint me as a sort of pantomime villain that was always at the front of controversy. I didn't. I fought for my football club because I felt that my football club deserved to be fought for. And I wouldn't have players or managers or media or anyone take liberties with, with my football club, which I saw a great responsibility for. And it's not me being pious after the event. It's how I see football now. I think that football has such huge influence and it needs to wield it properly. The final question then, I guess, here we are a decade and a half later. Um, the floppy the floppy blonde hair has gone. <laughs> um, you remain, to my knowledge of you, uh, much the same person as you were then, even if you have learned to deal with people with perhaps with, with a, uh, a velvet glove rather than a mm. hammer. Um, could you be enticed, Simon, back into football at an ownership level any time in the future? Oh, yeah, why not? Football's a great business now. It's matured. It's changing direction. You know, it is also about there are governance, so it's ridiculous governance, it's the only industry in the world that enables you to have regulation, that the financial fair play, which is the governance that's put over the top of football to try and make football clubs more financially secure, it's basically to try and avoid football clubs being at the whim of an individual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the governance is how much money you're allowed to lose. No other industry enables, it will allow that sort of regulation, but it also is putting controls in place. So if you look at football now, it's maturing. If you look at the fact that there are there are more opportunities for football to make money, most of the Premier League clubs are making money. A lot of championship clubs are making money now. So it's a more mature business. I spent 10 years. Some people can say I got a £50 million education or a £50 million enema. Depends upon your perspective. But the one thing you can't buy is experience. So I know football. I don't profess to know more than the manager. I don't profess to know more than the player. But I know what goes on in the minds of these people and I know how to make the right decisions at the right time. And we've spoken on many different platforms about managers being hired. And most of the time, without being arrogant, you and I have been right. We've looked at it. It's easy to be right when you're saying something negative because if you're wrong and it goes the positive, no one forgets it anyway. Yeah, but we often pick out and say, that's not going to work, is it? And and usually you're right. Claudio Ranieri at Fulham being classic case Disaster. Disaster waiting to happen. Absolutely. Lovely man, walking disaster at Fulham, yeah. And so the answer to your question is, I've had opportunities. I nearly did a deal in Portsmouth in 2012. I looked at Aston Villa. You know, there is still an inherent love of football in me. I it's know, not, you love it. It's yeah. not as much as it once was because it does take the edge off you. It does take away a lot of what you believe to be right. But when you stand in the middle of a, of a Millennium Stadium with 50,000 fans or 45,000 fans that support your football club with 700 million people around the world watching, you get promoted to the Premier League. These are moments that you can never get anywhere else. Placing a bet? 
It's exhausting running around looking for the best odds. Don't waste your breath. It's time you check Marathon Bet. Before you place your acker this week, check Marathon Bet first. You may find we're best priced. And better odds mean bigger winnings. Download the Marathon Bet app or visit marathonbet.co.uk. 18plusbgambleware.org. Now, Simon, the lovely people at Marathon Bet, uh, for the duration of this series of podcasts that we're doing here, Boot Room to Boardroom, have given us uh, some money to do charity bets. And we're both going to be required uh, to make three bets on the football fixtures of the weekend um, and hopefully make a few bob for charity. Now, we've got the list of the fixtures in front of us here. Um, What ones have you chosen? Well, given I was never allowed to bet on football clubs in my time as an owner, I'm going to bet on Palace playing Everton. And I'm going to get bet on Palace beating Everton. And I can rub it into Bill Kenwright when I see him. Your great friend Bill Kenwright, yeah. Yep. Um, I'm going to bet on the Fulham-Cardiff game because I've got my faith in my old manager, Neil Warnock, that Cardiff will get a win in this game because the they'll luck, need the, to. The luck they've had all year, yeah, they probably well, won't. But I, the tragedies. Him. Yeah. And the final bet is the Manchester United-Chelsea game. And I've got a feeling that Chelsea are going to get a result here because I've said that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is an unavoidable mistake and I feel that this will be an opportunity for that 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 prophecy to come to the fore. So I'm going to bet on Chelsea beating Manchester United at Manchester United. Well, hopefully all three of those results will come through and you'll make some money for charity. I'm personally going to go, go for Spurs to win in their new ground against West Ham, though West Ham, of course, will be trying their level best to trip Spurs off for some reason. West Ham decide that Spurs are their big enemies and their big rivals. Spurs need those points to qualify for the top four. Um, Watford against Wolves is a repeat um, of the FA Cup semi-final, won um, in such amazing fashion by Watford. But I think Wolves will get their revenge, but they've got less on their plate than Watford, and also they'll be motivated for it. I also think they're a really good football team. So I've got Wolves to win that one. And now, controversially, uh, given that her indoors is an Arsenal fan and everyone I care about and loves sports Arsenal, um, Arsenal go to the King Power on on the Monday, the 29th. They take on Leicester, and again, Arsenal will probably have to win in order to qualify for the Champions League in the top four. But my suspicion is that the Foxes um, will beat them. So those are my three. Spurs to win, Wolves to win and Leicester to win against Arsenal. Well, that's it. Thank you for downloading the Marathon Bet Bootroom to Boardroom podcast. Um, Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And the next episode, where Simon and I will be discussing the business of transfers, will come straight to your phone as soon as it's released. Yeah, and if you can be bothered, please remember to leave a nice review. That's it for now. Goodbye from me, Danny Kelly. Goodbye from me, Simon Jordan. Marathon Bet, 18 plus, begambleaware.org.